Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of The Iron Dice, a history podcast with yours truly, Dan Arrows. This episode is part one of a multi-part series on the struggle for power in Germany in the 1920s. Many people judge this period as merely the run-up to the Third Reich, which I think is kind of sad. Because what happened in Weimar Germany is not only a lesson especially in these times, but it's also a real political thriller. So if you'll allow me, I'll take you from the collapse of the German Empire in 1918 over the swing and glam of the Roaring Twenties, all the way to the open carnage in the streets of Berlin as left, right and center struggle for control of the country. Join me in our first series that carries the name The Fight for the Republic. I'll see you on the other side. We are determined that the vicious German cycle of war, pony peace, shall once and for all time come to an end. This is London Court. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. Early this morning, the Soviet group those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. Tonight I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Not eyes have seen the... Say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. Over a million people here celebrating a day that they never thought would come. A day in which Germany became one country again. Launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. If the iron dice must roll, may God help us. The date is October 1st, 1918. It's probably pretty cold this morning. It might feel even a little colder if you are one of the officers who the quartermaster of the German army, Erich Ludendorff, has just ordered into the conference room. Rumors have already been making the rounds about what Ludendorff might announce. Rumors that most of those invited find impossible to believe. Ludendorff very much resembles the stereotypical image of the stern Prussian aristocrat. Face like a bulldog, can't even imagine this guy ever cracking anything close to a smile. Flawless uniform and a helmet that looks like it's welded on. He is also the type of person who is die-hard conservative in their political views, but forward-thinking in their profession. Very open to new ideas and not at all afraid to gamble. The modern Alexander is one of the names given to him by the German public. A hero made of steel is another one. And this brazenness, as one might call it, led him from commanding a standard infantry unit at the outbreak of the Great War to becoming number two in the German high command. Now, four years into the First World War in 1918, he stands at the height of his power as the de facto military dictator of Germany. He is the man everyone is looking at to finally deal the finishing blow to France, Britain and their allies. And not even a year prior, in 1917, it looked like he would and victory was on the horizon. Russia had just been knocked out, which freed up a bunch of troops to be used elsewhere. 
Romania also defeated relatively quickly. And the Italians had just been dealt a devastating defeat at the Battle of Caporetto, during which roughly a quarter of a million Italians surrendered. Here's how one of Ludendorff's general staff officers assesses the situation in his diary on New Year's Eve 1917. Our position was never really so good. The military giant Russia is completely finished and pleads for peace. The same with Romania. Serbia and Montenegro have simply gone. England and France are still ready for battle but are much exhausted. Above all, the French. And the English are very much under pressure from the U-boats. Now, in October 1918, the situation looks much different. The people of Germany, who four years prior were so confident of a quick victory that would show the other great powers that they would no longer be kept down by them, at this point, the country is in a state of total exhaustion. To give you just one number, at the chapter of the story that we are in right now, roughly 800,000 Germans have died of malnutrition at the home front. The only upside for them is that they're not the only ones struggling. All major nations who are part of this have lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of soldiers. Entire regions are devastated. The French army is plagued by mutinies, although still fighting very courageously. Russia gone from the scene and preoccupied with a brutal civil war. Although technically still in the war, Germany's allies like Austria-Hungary and the Ottomans are more or less completely done for and merely empty shells of their old empires. The German army can still maintain an intact front line, stem off an attack here and there, but they are clearly on the back foot. Two days before Ludendorff calls for the meeting, a German soldier stationed in Belgium assesses the situation like this. The enemy's general offensive has been raging for weeks. Our front is quietly crumbling. The number of deserters is growing tremendously. The enemy dominates the air. His planes appear in swamps and press our troops and staff hard. We are also suffering. Oh, how our troops look. Pale, filthy, riddled with vermin. The laughter is gone. A company that is supposed to count 200 rifles instead is made up of 30 to 40. Horses that die of hunger or are mercifully killed by grenade are immediately cut up, cooked and eaten by our starving men. Only the skeleton remains. While this is just a single account, it resembles the attitude many German soldiers have at this point, which is one of utter desperation. It's becoming more and more apparent to them that the promised Endsieg, the final victory, isn't going to happen. And Ludendorff knows this too. And now, in an overcrowded conference room, leaning on a big table with both hands, he breaks the news to his subordinates. He says he's obliged to inform those present that the military situation is, quote, terrible. Not only has it become abundantly clear that Germany cannot win this war anymore, but that if it's not possible to reach an armistice, utter defeat will follow soon. The army has reached its limits. The Western Front could collapse soon. Bulgaria, one of Germany's allies, has dropped out of the war and will sign an armistice only a couple of hours from when this meeting takes place. This rips a big hole in what is called the Macedonian Front. It is now possible for the Allies to attack Constantinople, the Ottoman Empire's capital, from the west, and occupied Serbia from the east. This leaves little doubt that Austria and the Ottomans will soon surrender as well. 
In short, Ludendorff tells them that with our allies gone, the enemy's eyes will soon solely rest on us and it is only a matter of time until they start hitting us with both barrels. As if that wasn't bad enough, Ludendorff stretches that their own army is already infested, is the word he chooses, with, quote, Spartacist socialist ideas. It can't be relied on anymore, according to him. It is hard to describe what an impact Ludendorff's words have on the officers present. They feel like their world is crumbling. Reading the accounts from some of them, it becomes apparent just how absolutely terrified they are. One general would later write in his personal notes that he wasn't sure if he was awake or having a nightmare. Of course, losing a war always looks bad on the resume, but this defeat comes close to an apocalypse for them. So much so that, while Ludendorff is still talking, these stern, ego-driven men who are mostly beyond their 50s start crying and grabbing each other's hands. And these are like tough guys usually. Back then, especially in the military, there was this cold of the hard man, you know, never show emotions, always seem cold-faced, very strong throughout the culture back then. But receiving this revelation from Ludendorff, it almost looks like a bunch of people holding a joint therapy session. If we put ourselves in their mindset though, this reaction becomes very understandable. At this point, what you have to understand is that military victories are what the German Empire had been built upon. The German Empire doesn't lose a war. The last time that happened was over 100 years ago against Napoleon. These guys grew up on stories of how their fathers heroically beat the Danes, the Austrians and the French even. Their entire careers, or not just careers, but lives are built on this. As Ludendorff utters his last sentences, he tilts his head, remains silent for a moment, then turns on the spot and leaves into his adjacent office. Some historians suggest that only in terms of raw military capacity... The German army wasn't finished and could at least hold out to early 1919. Now, whether you believe that that is the case or not doesn't really matter, because there is one thing that is even scarier to Ludendorff than merely losing the war. If you lose a war, you can come out of that relatively okay if you play your cards right. What none of these folks would come out of unscathed is a revolution. They only have to look to the east to see what that looks like, right? Horrific violence, brother fighting against brother, famine, all the bad things you can imagine. Russian conditions is a term thrown around a lot in Germany at the time. Germany also recently forced Russia into a draconian peace treatment, something they don't want to happen to them. To some extent, the horror scenario Ludendorff is imagining if the front collapses is even worse than that. He is fearing the end of Germany as a national entity. The routed troops, he says, will lose hold completely and in total dissolution flood back over the Rhine and carry the revolution to Germany. There are many things Ludendorff will be remembered for, and most of them are negative, rightly so. But he won't be remembered for being stupid. And although he is a shadow of his former self at this point and has been acting more and more erratic over the last months, at this moment he knows exactly what to do. From the second he realizes just how dire the military situation really is, he knows the clock is ticking. At the top of his list is, without a doubt, diffusing the revolutionary mood inside the country. Over the last year, communist groups have gained more and more traction. 
Russia is sitting right next to Germany, exerting every bit of influence it has. And the way he and others want to do this is by what's sometimes called a revolution from above. This is something that has been very prevalent in German history going back hundreds of years. The term essentially describes the ruling elite initiating reforms or political changes to prevent a real revolution. In other words, it's a tactical trade-off. You give a little bit to release some of the pressure from below. Bismarck, for instance, is someone who was a big fan of this. In fact, one of the things he is mostly remembered for in Germany was precisely that. Because it was Bismarck who introduced health insurance in Germany. And not out of the kindness of his heart, but to rob the leftist movements of an issue that had them gaining massive support. The plan Ludendorff and others come up with is almost genius in how devious it is. On September 30th, one day before the meeting with his officers, Ludendorff meets with the Kaiser's Council. There, Ludendorff breaks the news to the monarch himself, Kaiser Wilhelm II, about how defeat is imminent and that Germany should immediately try to get an armistice. The official head of the German army is also there, a guy called Paul von Hindenburg. I emphasize the official here because he's a bit of a grandpa and has been at this stage. You know, the guy is in his 70s, but still insanely beloved by the German public. So he's the figurehead, if you will, but Ludendorff runs the operation in reality. Apart from briefing the Kaiser and others on the situation, they have a proposal for him. One he might object to out of first instinct, but it's also a way to pull his own head out of the noose. Because the Kaiser is as concerned about revolution as anyone. A few months prior, news reached him about the Russian royal family's gruesome execution by the Bolsheviks. And while this might be scary stuff for any monarch, for Wilhelm II, the horror of this scenario is amplified because Tsar Nicholas of Russia was his cousin. Cousin Nicky, he used to call him in letters they wrote one another. Ludendorff and Hindenburg offer him a way out of a similar fate by transitioning Germany into a parliamentarian democracy, similar to Britain or Belgium at the time. This would remove some of the revolutionary tension in the country and show the Allies that Germany was willing to reform and rid itself of militarism. That is the idea. Most importantly, though, it will let the parliament take the reins for the months to come, something the political parties in the country have been asking for. More democracy, more transparency. So Ludendorff says, let's give it to him. Let them negotiate with the enemy. Let them take the blame if the peace conditions are as bad as he fears they will be. This is probably the most famous quote by Ludendorff because this is what some people point to as maybe the most significant birth defect the Weimar Republic had. He later says to his officers, I have advised his majesty to bring those groups into government whom we have to thank for the fact that matters have reached this pass. We shall now see these gentlemen moving into the country's ministries. Let them conclude the peace that must now be made. Let them eat the broth that they have cooked for us. This idea that Ludendorff espouses here will be how the right frames the defeat in the First World War and even does so to this day in Germany, that it wasn't the military who lost the war, but the people back home. It was the Bolsheviks and Jews who caused us this otherwise certain victory. Of course, that's a bunch of nonsense, but it allows many powerful people to save face at the time. According to him, one of the groups that should be put into government are the German Social Democrats, the SPD, who Ludendorff absolutely despises, by the way. 
To him, they're all Bolsheviks anyway. At this point in time, the German Social Democrats are explicitly Marxist, at least by their party program. As such, there is a lot of disagreement if they should join the other parties in the country and form a government coalition. Now, if they would have been asked the same question four years prior, it's hard to believe the majority of the party would be in favor of such a thing. To them, this would be a betrayal of the core principle of Marxism, which is class struggle, right? Not much of a struggle if you join the upper class in governing. What is different now is that the hardline Marxists already left the party when the SPD positioned itself as supporting the war effort in 1914. One of the key people inside the party who grew to prominence in this time is Friedrich Ebert. He comes out of the working class and is a strong voice inside the party for supporting the war. Two sons of his have died in the war by 1918, and when the question of working with the other parties in a joint government is asked, he is in favor of it. Like many others, he is completely turned off the idea of a revolution by what he sees in Russia going on at the moment. In a speech to his colleagues, he says, If we do not now seek an understanding with the bourgeois parties and the government, then we must let things take their course, adopt the revolutionary tactic, put ourselves on our own feet, and let the revolution decide the party's fate. Whoever has seen the situation in Russia cannot desire in the interest of the proletariat that things develop the same way here. On the contrary, we must hurl ourselves into the breach. We must see if we can gain enough influence to push our demands through. And if it is possible for us to link them with the rescue of the country, then it is our damned duty and responsibility to do it. So they walk into the trap set up by Ludendorff and others. A big reason for this is that Ebert and his party are utterly clueless about how bad the war is going, as is the majority of the country. Judging by the propaganda the German government put out by this point, losing isn't even in the realm of possibilities. Early in the year, the government tried to get people to buy war bonds by putting a poster saying, times are tough, but victory is certain. Another war bond is literally titled, the last blow. After the Kaiser declares Germany to transition into a parliamentarian democracy, the first issue of order is sacking the old chancellor. He is sort of backwards, and the parties make a demand that he goes, so he resigns. The suggestions of who is going to be his successor go back and forth, but ultimately they reach a compromise with Prince Max von Baden becoming the new chancellor. Like his cousin, the Kaiser, he has a big bushy mustache and eyes that make him look constantly tired or sad even. What is special about him is that he has a secret that makes him very vulnerable politically and open to blackmail by his enemies. This secret is also why his family looks down on him and think he is a weakling, because Prince Max von Baden is gay. He underwent what amounts to conversion therapy to maybe fix what he thought was wrong with him in the past. He also marries a woman he doesn't love to comply with what is expected of him. Shortly after, the rumor gets out that von Baden and his wife have trouble getting children, him being the particular problem, something that is only resolved through medical assistance, let's say. As a result, the Kaiser gives his cousin the nickname, the Limp Max. And up until the very end, the Kaiser really doesn't want him to be the Chancellor because he thinks he'll screw it up. Still, von Baden is known for being open to liberal reforms, signing a peace with honor, very much a middle-of-the-road kind of guy. 
So he is supposed to be the face of this new democratic Germany to their enemies. For him, this is also a chance to prove his worth and save the country in its darkest hour. Like the parties he builds his cabinet with, the liberals, centrists and social democrats, he doesn't know yet what he just got himself into. It starts to dawn on them when, before Max von Baden is even sworn in, the military high command insists on briefing the new government on the state of the war. What's easy to forget while we're talking about these political developments inside the country, the war hasn't stopped. Every day, people are dying by the thousands. In the same week that all of this is happening, the Allies rip a big hole into the German defensive positions in Belgium. The British push on through Palestine and take Damascus. Germany is increasingly staring down the barrel of a gun here. On October 2nd, the military high command sends a major to brief the party leaders on the recent developments. Calmly, he explains how the advances the Allies have made are still modest compared to Germany's successes earlier this year. Still, the unexpectedly high number of tanks the Allies deploy causes panic among the troops. They are also losing a ton of front officers. If the enemy can sustain the attack this way, the German army will have to strike and dodge at the same time. He concludes by saying that, while it's possible to inflict heavy casualties on the enemy for a couple of months more, winning is not. With every passing day, Germany's leverage in a peace deal is reduced. As you can probably imagine, the parliamentarians are in total disbelief of what they just heard. Some of them get up and start shouting at the guy. Ebert supposedly looked as pale as a corpse upon hearing this. A party colleague of his called Philipp Scheidemann gives off the impression that he just had a heart attack. The takeaway the parliamentarians have differs from person to person, but broadly speaking, one faction realizes that they have been set up. That this is just a way for the military to put this new government on the chopping block instead of themselves. One of those people inside the Social Democrats is Philipp Scheidemann, who compares this new government's forming to entering an already bankrupt company. The arguably more prominent faction simply doesn't want to believe that things are this bad. Max von Baden, the new chancellor, being one of them. The day he takes up his position, he gets a request from the military high command to immediately contact the American president, Woodrow Wilson, to enter peace negotiations. They believe Woodrow Wilson is the key figure among the Allies with whom they have the best chance at a good peace deal, maybe even one that restores the pre-war status quo. Early in the year, Wilson unveiled a peace proposal called the 14 Points, which the Germans now want to get in on. Some of those points are rather vague and easy to accept for them, like reducing free trade barriers. Others are specific, and those are also why the German public only knows this proposal in its censored form. Point 8 of the 14, for instance, says, quote, All French territory should be freed and the invaded portions restored, and the wrong done to France by Prussia in 1871 in the matter of Alsace-Lorraine, which has unsettled the peace of the world for nearly 50 years, should be righted, in order that peace may once more be made secure in the interest of all. Another tough sell for the German public would be point 13, which aims at creating an independent Polish state with access to the sea. That is not something you can reconcile with the treaty Germany has just made with the Soviets. 
Naturally, it is not Max von Baden's intention to fully accept all of Wilson's points, but, you know, enter negotiations based on them. He is concerned that this won't be possible if he requests peace now, now that Germany is on the back foot. So, on his first day in office, he meets with Hindenburg to get a clear picture of what he is working with. At this meeting, von Baden says that pushing for negotiations will put Germany in a bad bargaining position and that Hindenburg should think about the significant psychological effect of a peace offer to the enemy. Hindenburg shows himself unimpressed by this and insists on entering negotiations right away because every passing day is costing the lives of thousands of brave soldiers. Of course, this could have been said about nearly any day of the war and that this is coming from Hindenburg is incredibly rich. Before the end of September, he and Ludendorff worked overtime to demonize anyone even talking about making peace, calling them traitors, defeatists, all kinds of horrible stuff. And then suddenly, there has to be an armistice right away. You can't really blame von Baden for being irritated by dealing with this guy. By the way, at this meeting, they only correspond in written statements, so you can imagine the mood in the room. Still, von Baden keeps digging and directly poses the question, A, for how long can the army keep the enemy from German soil? And B, is the military high command aware that entering negotiations now could mean the loss of Alsace-Lorraine, German colonies, and their Polish-speaking territories? If you read the high command messaging, be it in this correspondence or elsewhere, you can't miss the incoherence of the things they say. The response von Baden gets is characterized by this as well, because the answer he gets is basically this. The army can probably hold out until next spring, but if something unforeseen happens three weeks from now, the front could collapse in less than 24 hours. Although we currently don't expect that to happen. They also keep insisting on entering negotiations for an armistice, but while they are okay with losing Alsace-Lorraine's French parts, making any concessions in the east is, quote, out of the question for them. Von Baden really isn't to be envied trying to get a clear picture from these guys. As a result, he doesn't send a message to Woodrow Wilson because he feels that doing this now will make Germany look weak. When Ludendorff hears of this, he erupts with anger and demands Von Baden does what the high command and the Kaiser say. This back and forth goes on for over 20 hours until Von Baden caves in. He also realized that he is not going to be the savior of the fatherland, maneuvering the country out of its darkest hour. To the people that really run the country, the Kaiser, Ludendorff and Hindenburg, he is just a puppet. He is supposed to play his role as a reformer and convince the rest of the world that the country is willing to change. After the peace negotiations, it's expected of him to step aside and let the old forces retake the reins. One historian named Lothar Machtan, who wrote a biography on von Baden, notes that this realization that he doesn't really have any political power and is just a means to an end caused a crack in von Baden's mind from which he never recovered. So on the night of the 3rd of October, he signs the offer to Woodrow Wilson about entering peace negotiations and also immediately entering a ceasefire. A day later, he holds his first speech in front of the German parliament in which he proclaims the goals of his new government. Above all, they are serving as the voice of the German people and bringing this horrible war to a swift end. 
He even speaks of fully compensating Belgium and honoring the wishes of the Polish people. But then again, he can't leave it at that and goes on to say that our front is still unbroken, Germany is willing to carry on this fight and ready to, quote, fight to the death. He ends his speech by saying that, just like the soldiers on the front, every German at home is willing to make any sacrifice for the fatherland. This shows that even now, von Baden misjudges how much strength is left in the military. To his defense, nearly everyone else is too. You can find this fear of giving up too early, even among the Social Democrats. For instance, the party paper, which is called Forward, runs an article on October 3rd in which it says, quote, Woe to the people who put their weapons against the wall five minutes too early. Even among the Allies, most higher-ups expect Germany to continue fighting well into 1919. What those people don't seem to pay much attention to is the social conditions inside the country. With every passing day, more and more people suffer from hunger. The frequency of food riots breaking out skyrockets now that winter is coming. Often when this happens, the police violently beat them down. Riding through the crowds on horseback, hitting men, women and children with wooden batons. If someone manages to stock up on more goods than they are allowed to have, the police come into their homes and take it from them. It is not hard to imagine that seeing something like that take place, seeing food being taken from a crying widow who has children to feed, while the wealthy aristocrats are allowed to have everything, that radicalizes you faster than any amount of communist influence could. It's hard to maintain the position of holding out for the fatherland, if that seemingly only applies to the worker and not the boss. A couple of days after von Baden's speech in front of Parliament, he receives the answer from Woodrow Wilson, which leaves room for some optimism. Wilson asks if he really is negotiating with someone speaking for the German people and not the Kaiser, and further if Germany is willing to accept the 14 points in their original form. This kind of shows how much of this negotiation hinges on Max von Baden convincing Germany's enemies of his persona, of being this democratic reformer and peacemaker. That image gets a significant blow when a letter is made public that he wrote in January the same year. In this letter, von Baden not only argues for a Europe dominated by Germany, but also shows complete contempt for democracy. This is the last nail in the coffin of von Baden's image outside of Germany, and the foreign press rips him to pieces, calling him a slippery character and the manifestation of Germany's dishonesty. Wilson, smart guy that he was, was worried that von Baden would just be a puppet of the military. As such, he strikes down Germany's request for an armistice if they don't give up any occupied territory. This condition by Wilson ultimately foils the plan that Ludendorff has. Because Ludendorff doesn't really want peace. He mainly cares about two things. One, preventing a revolution from happening. And two, using an armistice to get a short break to give his troops some space to breathe. He wants to buy some time to then continue the fight in a more secure position. It just happens so that the Allies see right through this. In Wilson's second note, which arrives in Berlin on October 16th, he writes that he won't accept any deal that doesn't secure military supremacy of the Allies over Germany. This note leads to a fierce debate in the German parliament, with von Baden finally demanding a clear picture from Ludendorff what their options are. 
can we move some troops around or draft more people? Is there anything that can get the Allies to the negotiating table? Ludendorff, once again, is very evasive and redirects the conversation to what he judges as the real problem, the mood in the country. The people just aren't behind the war effort as much anymore, and he puts it on the civilian leadership to fix that. One of the Social Democrats points out how absolutely delusional that is. He calls the attitude of the population a potato question. In other words, the best propaganda in the world isn't worth much when people are literally starving, and more so every day. Another person says that Wilson's demand shows a clear intention by the enemy to annihilate Germany and that this might cause a new wave of enthusiasm in favor of the war. They're grasping at every straw, like maybe defending German territory will reinvigorate the troops, perhaps the enemy soldiers lack the will to take this fight all the way to Berlin. They see no way out of carrying this fight to the bitter end. The answer Wilson gets comes off as a plea for him to cooperate, insisting that this new government is representing the people who want peace. Wilson fully slams the door shut in his third message, which is a masterpiece in political maneuvering. He decides to call Germany's bluff by saying that as long as the military rulers and aristocratic monarchs aren't wholly disempowered, Germany can only surrender. Further, the only ceasefire he will agree to has to be one that, quote, makes the continuation of hostilities from Germany's side impossible. In other words, there will be no ceasefire. You have to surrender. When Hindenburg and Ludendorff hear of this diplomatic slap in the face, they go ballistic. Without speaking to the civilian government, Ludendorff sends a message to every army soldier that Wilson's response can only be understood as a call to continue this fight with maximum strength. Only when the enemy realizes that no matter what they sacrifice, they cannot break through our lines, then they'll agree to a peace that secures Germany's future. As a response, von Baden puts his foot down, telling the Kaiser, either Ludendorff goes or I go. And since Ludendorff doesn't have much to offer, except an honorable fight to the death, he gets the boot. It doesn't really matter anymore, though. One day, after Ludendorff is deposed, the Emperor of Austria-Hungary, Germany's biggest ally, officially terminates their alliance. What you see a lot in this small time window in which the German Empire is sounding its death rattle is people in power trying to deal with the country's pain, anger and frustration. To manage it in such a way that the finger isn't pointing at them. We can't even imagine the suffering that has boiled up over the last four years. The pain of the soldiers dying at the front and the civilians starving at home. I got... A tiny glimpse of it, I feel like, a few years ago. I visited Verdun in France, where one of the war's bloodiest battles took place. There are numerous German cemeteries scattered around the area where the graves are marked with black cast iron crosses. Most of those just read an unknown German soldier. Usually it's mass graves. A few do have names on them, and... While I visited one of these cemeteries, I spotted a plastic bag taped to one of the crosses. In the bag, there was a handwritten note that you could read if you got really close. 
it said this. Dear Papa, now I finally found him. Well, almost at least. Now you can finally have peace. Yours, and then the name of the person who wrote the letter, with the date being precisely 100 years after the day of death on the cross. Judging from the wording and the handwriting, this letter was written by the child of someone who himself spent his whole life unsuccessfully looking for his father's grave. These little ripples of pain really draw into focus how much this affected millions of people. And it's precisely this pain that the German ruling elite is afraid of in 1918 and want to contain. They will not be successful. The suffering built up over the years of the war will erupt in the north and then from there engulf the entire country. And make no mistake, the slogans on the lips of the people who kick this off aren't just peace and bread. What more and more soldiers are whispering to one another when the officers aren't looking is something else. In the original German, it would be Licht aus, Messer raus. The English translation is Lights out, Knives out. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of The Iron Dice. If you enjoyed it, share it with your friends or share it with your enemies for that matter. If you want my eternal gratitude, you can also leave a review on iTunes because that stuff really helps. You can stay up to date on everything surrounding the podcast by following us on Twitter at IronDicePod or myself at Dan underscore Arrows. Other than that, there isn't much more for me to say except that I hope to see you the next time. Until then, have a good one.